You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 26th, 2014. This is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Episode 451, The Burning Point of Credulity. Hello. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. Did you, ever, did you actually ever read Fahrenheit 451? Ah, boy. You know, I, I attempted it as a teenager and failed. I think I put it down about a third of the way through. Oh, so I read it. It's a good book. I, like it. I reread yeah. it a couple months ago. It was much better when I was in high school. <laughs> read it when you're in high school. <laughs> it's got its charms, but it's to me, it was a it was a heavily flawed book. Hey, uh, yeah. guess what happened <laughs> today? I have no, I have no segue. Uh, You're a segue Happy March, everyone, first of all. Is, yep. uh, March 1st. Yeah, that's right. It's now March, March 1st. In 1865, on March 1st, Rebecca Lee Crumpler uh, became the first black woman to receive an American medical degree. She was just known as Rebecca Davis Lee at the time, but she eventually went on to marry and became known as Rebecca Lee Crumpler. But she was pretty awesome. She was born in 1831 in Delaware, and she had an aunt who was known for being good with uh, dealing with the sick, and she really looked up to this aunt and decided that she should go on to also, you know, uh, devote her time to helping the sickly so remarkably for the time period she actually uh studied hard and she overcame quite a bit of both sexism and racism in order to eventually graduate from new england female medical college uh, with her md she went on to practice medicine focused mostly on women and children and she wrote a book of medical discourses describing her experiences dealing with various illnesses. She was pretty cool. Rebecca Lee Crumpler. I looked up uh, the New England Female Medical College. This is before the Flexner Report in 1910, so there were tons of medical colleges. But this was founded by a Samuel Gregory, an all-female medical college, because he believed it was unseemly for male physicians to assist women during childbirth. So... Had to get them out of any, you know, couldn't get, couldn't allow them into male medical schools. And at the time, women were not allowed to attend medical lectures or examinations. So that, you know, they, they needed wow. their own college. But in 1873, it merged with Boston University School of Medicine. So I went by to then they were University. already, yeah, they were already integrating. So guys, Nexus is coming up. Oh yeah. boy. Yeah. Can't wait. Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism, uh, co-hosted by the New England Skeptical Society and the New York City Skeptics. What is this, JR? Fifth year, sixth year? Um, uh, it's our 28th year, Steve. 28th year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, this will be our first, uh, the SGU's first live appearance of the year. It's always a great conference. We have a lot of fun. So I've been working on, I wanted to have a debate this year on, as part of Nexus, because no one really, I think conferences generally shy away from debates, but I think you could, they could be handled properly, and and when they do, uh, they could be really informative and very interesting. So this year we're going to have a panel discussion on 
genetically modified organisms. GMO. Oh my God, more GMO. Well, that won't be and, controversial. Yeah, and we got a essentially a pro-GMO scientist, uh, Kevin Falta, and we have on the critical of the GMO side, Marty Mesh, who is an organic advocate, essentially. Um, so it's going to be a lively discussion. You know, it's going to be respectful, of course, but, you know, we'll have both uh, ends of the spectrum hashing out all, you know, we're going to do a deep dive on GMO, like really explore the science and the nuances and all the issues related to it. It should be a great discussion. Uh, I'm really excited about it. I'm glad we were able to pull that together. And if this goes well, I think I would advocate having some kind of a debate type uh, panel every year. I think that they're they're awesome. So, Steve, you know, like you can't yell at the people on this panel, right? Yeah, no yelling. Right. I'm sorry. Who's moderating? But <laughs> Steve, Steve's <laughs> moderating. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, we got Lawrence Krauss as our keynote, Paul Offit, uh, Elise Andrew, Jamie in Swiss, Massimo Piliucci, who's Massimo is one of the most brilliant people in the skeptical movement, by the way. And he's not a, he's not a very showy person, uh, but he's one of the like the real academics who I think provides a lot of legitimacy to our movement. And he's always I always learn something from his talks. I mean. He's not just, you know, going through the usual stuff. He really gives amazing content. You know, if all he needs, if he just adds in jazz hands, he'd be epic. <laughs> <laughs> Janine Garbarino, uh, Heather Berlin, and uh, George Hobb will be there. Our George. George. Yep. And uh, the Rationally Speaking podcast, as well mm-hmm. as, of course, the SG will have a live show on stage. All right, listen, listen to the workshops we have this year. Uh, Music and Skepticism with Hai Ting and George Hobb. Do-it-yourself biology, science using a handheld microscope, Ooh. ask a physicist. Bob, you should go to that oh, one. Okay. I'll be there. It's the, the art one, of skepticism. One question, Bob. Limit it to one question. Yeah. we got the art of skepticism and the edge of skepticism. But I'm going to give two conferences, two talks. They will be different, even though the titles are the same, on um, critical thinking, science, or skepticism. So I'm going to focus on the science on one and the skepticism on the other. We had other workshops in mind for Steve, but he rejected them. One of them was how to pick up babes. Yeah. He just didn't think yeah. that. I just I give it so often. I'm just tired of giving that one. <laughs> how, to, yeah. how to grow your own bananas. <laughs> uh, that one, I'd love to give that one. Grow, how, to yes. grow, how to grow your own bananas. But it's but, and the, art, and the art of drinking hard liquor. I'm, I'm waiting right, until Steve? I actually grow one. <laughs> Steve, your, your basement is literally like a, 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 work a in banana progress. graveyard. It's like there's like four or five banana plants <laughs> down there. He's got like a grow light and, and they're all like brown and dying. Like they barely hold on all winter. And then finally in the spring, he pushes them outside. And there are there are 21 banana plants in my basement. What? Only, only one has actually died. I have 20 alive and hanging on. Hey, if I can keep them alive like through the winter. Ratio. If you had that's 20 good. puppies in your basement and one dead one, we would rightfully say that there's something wrong with you. But he that's has, good. I said four because he's got four like really big ones. Like the other ones, yeah, are literally, yeah. you don't even really see him. But, but I have one, I have one upstairs though, a dwarf Cavendish that is connected that fit in my actual heated house by the southern, you know, uh, bay window. That one's thriving. 
Nice. That's the one that's going to bear fruit because it's actually thriving over the winter, and then when I, when summer hits, it's going to take oh, off. I, Steve, I gotta eat a Cavendish, man. If you, if you I know, Cavendishes are the that's the one that you're used no, to. That's, that's a standard one. Now, yeah. It's oh, a Gros no, no, Michels. No, the the Gros Michels are the epic. That's Michel. what I want. I want that creamy one. No, no, but I got. Hey, Jay, I have ice cream bananas. Those are the ice ones. Cream I, bananas? Ice cream bananas. You can't even get these. These are even better than the Gros Michel. These you have to grow them or be where they're grown. I gotta be there. So you're gonna make banana pancakes with these things. Right. Oh sure. No oh, yeah. ice I, ice cream sundays. How epic would that banana? You know. Are banana, we still talking ice, about Steve's bananas? Yeah. yeah so anyway, so. guys, come <laughs> Nexus. to Nexus. Come come <laughs> hang out with the SGU at Nexus. We always have a great time. The stimulus response show, like I said, is going to be epic. So you know, please come join us for that as well. And there'll, there'll be plenty of time to hang out and talk to us if you'd like to meet us, and we'd like to meet you. So please come. Let's go on to some news items. This first one's interesting. This is a. Uh, Scientists are reporting on a new process by which a child can have three parents, three genetic parents, meaning that they, the, wow. uh, yeah, their DNA comes from three different, three different individuals. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger and the twins. Well, he was like six or seven more parents. Than that. Is that how yeah. that went? Yeah. So this is a, a process of in vitro fertilization. What the scientists do is they take the mitochondria from the egg of the of the maternal donor and they remove them and they replace them with mitochondria from another donor and oh, then okay. they fertilize it with the sperm so you have three parents one providing the male dna one the female dna and one the mitochondrial dna hmm. so so one's more of a lesser parent well but it's a, the reason that they're that they're doing this is because there are some people who have mitochondrial diseases and they would pass them on to their children this way, you can have a child that's your child, right? This, you know, through IVF, this would be the, the mother and the father would, it would be their genetic offspring, but they would have healthy mitochondria from another donor. They wouldn't have the mitochondrial yeah. genetic disease. Bob's point is a good one, though, because I, I think a lot of people might see the headlines and think that this means that there are three equal parents, yeah. you know, that are then creating a child together that was my first thought when i read the headline oh yeah um, me too you know imagining like oh well you know, this might be great for say same-sex couples or something like that but yeah in actuality you've got two parents who are giving you know 99.9 percent of the genetic material and then the third quote-unquote parent giving the rest the mitochondrial yeah, it's, it's not like you're going to have the nose of the mitochondrial parent. You know, that's not going to happen. There's, there's no phenotype no that's going to change. Yeah, and this through. isn't like a a problem of designer babies, which is another thing you, that I've seen thrown around in the wake of this is like, oh, now people are just going to be, you know, designing their own babies, choosing eye color and hair color and things like that. But that's not actually what mitochondrial DNA does. You know, all they're doing, they're taking all of the mitochondria uh, and all of the nucleus of the egg from the quote-unquote yeah. mother uh, and slapping them together. They're not picking and choosing chromosomes, and we're still a long right. way off from being able to do that. When I first read it, I thought it, I thought the baby was the result of a threesome, so I'm kind of glad that that, that didn't <laughs> <Come> happen. <on. laughs> I like you ever get a threesome, Bob. So the FDA is, is taking public, you know, is holding public hearings on whether or not to approve this process because it's controversial. So uh, Marcy Darnofsky, the executive director of the Center for Genetics and Society, who is a critic of the procedure, 
is quoted as saying, what we're talking about is radical experimentation on future children. A decision of such profound magnitude should not be made behind the mostly closed doors of this agency, she says during public hearings. So this is just, in my opinion, this is Luddite fear-mongering. Oh, it's something new. It's different. It's genetics. I think people are afraid of genetics. And I just, I just don't see where the fear I don't, I don't see the legitimacy of the fear. I kind of see where it's coming from. But I think that this is the kind of thing that people will get used to. The, every time, you know, there is some kind of genetic progress, there are people who scaremonger about it. You know, of course, you guys you know, remember about like the first test tube baby. Yeah. There were protesters about it's unnatural. The child's going to be shunned. You know, they always bring up safety. It's not safe. It's like, all right, well, you know, let the experts deal with the safety issue. That's not really your problem. That's a proxy issue. You just have to just have some gut negative reaction to the notion that they're, you're fiddling, you know, with uh, playing God. With, yeah. yeah. Don't play God. They were called Franken babies. I mean, you know, that's uh-huh. just, oh. that just people just can't get that out of their head. And of course, none of that came to fruition. The kids grew up perfectly fine. They were. Totally yeah, I mean, if healthy. anything, she's got superhuman no strength and uh, yeah. <laughs> she sheds her skin twice a month. But that's not weird. Well, yeah, I mean, superhuman powers are located in the mitochondrial DNA. Everyone knows that. <laughs> they are the powerhouses of the cell. <laughs> and, you know, right and this isn't going to go away, though. I mean, there are still people who protest IVF. Uh, yeah, You know, sure. so I, I think this is going to, ha- you know, people are going to complain about this regardless. But I, I really can't. See, unless there's um, there's a problem with the actual research that suggests that this might be dangerous for the the mother, for instance. I can't imagine that the FDA will rule against this. Yeah, I think it, I I agree. I think it'll come down to the science and and not the public, you know, emotional reaction to it. So I'm not saying there aren't any legitimate ethical considerations when we're talking about new technology that alters human beings. I'm not saying that, but I do feel that a lot of the arguments and the reaction against it are not these like well reasoned discussions about the implications of genetic modification. It's more just moralistic and and fearful you know um and i do think that this will there I mean, there's always going to be people against it i think you're right but i think in terms of like the majority of people like we're already used to ivf it's now mainstream this will happen and then you know they'll be they'll realize that these kids are perfectly normal healthy kids they'll see parents who said who are delighted that they can have a family and they can have normal children who don't have some horrible mitochondrial disorder you know and then they'll get used to that and you know i think little by little genetic human genetic modification will become acceptable and it and it will start as a way of preventing or treating diseases just before we go on, I just want to mention that we have upcoming later in the show, we have an interview with Michio Kaku about his new book. We're really looking forward to that. Uh, but first, let's go on to another news item. Evan, you're going to tell us how the Egyptian army is on the brink of curing AIDS. Yes. Good news, everyone. Science, news. Is, alive. <laughs> Science is alive and well in Egypt, but you wouldn't know it from this news item. Right. Uh, the Egyptian government released a news statement. And so let's all get out our Rosetta Stones and see what it says. Yes, the armed forces achieve a scientific breakthrough. And this is their this is their statement, okay? Uh, President Adli Mansour and Field Marshal Abdel Fattah el-Sisi inaugurated the first college of medicine that is affiliated to the armed forces. The new college is the first military educational entity which aims at graduating medical cadres who are highly qualified cadres. Mansour and Sisi, along with another 
along with a number of other senior officials, were presented with the first system for discovering and treating hepatitis and AIDS patients. The Armed Forces personnel achieved a scientific breakthrough by inventing systems for diagnosing hepatitis and AIDS without any need to take a sample of blood from the patient. The invention was registered in the name of the Engineering Corps of the Armed Forces and was authorized by the Ministry of Health. And uh, Egypt's national TV channel uh, ran a video that showed a physician making tests of an HIV patient using the device and telling him, quote, your tests are so great, you had HIV, but now the disease vanished, end quote. This seems too good to be true, right? Well, what's yes. the invention? Exactly what are we talking about here? So we have two devices, the CFAST and the IFAST. According to CCTV Africa, they reported that the IFAST brings 100% guaranteed cures against HIV, uh, while 90, 95% uh, from the CFAST to treat hepatitis C. So they are claiming some pretty incredible cure, detection and cure rates. <laughs> so... With claims like that, how could this not be true? Because they're lying? <laughs> well, Because <laughs> this well, is all just propaganda? <laughs> propaganda, indeed. But here's how it works. Here's what they say. All right. The device is hand-operated with a grip on one end and a thin rod, some kind of metal or alloy that pivots at the handle, a little wand that waves out there. Uh, if you think of it this way, it looks very similar to those fake bomb detectors sold by the uh, the British fellow to Iraq a few years ago. He's in jail now because these of These are you know, basically those fake bomb detectors. The refitted golf ball, uh, lost golf yeah. ball detectors. Yes, that's exactly uh, what it looks and seems to operate like. And what do they claim happens when you use one of these? The makers of the device believe in the notion that viruses give off electromagnetic signals. Hmm. These signals are apparently unique to the virus, so it actually becomes a signature. And so, therefore, while all the chemistry and biological processes that are occurring inside your body simultaneously and in perpetuity, uh, the CFAST and the IFAST devices can detect the presence of the harmful virus and treat the infection. Do viruses have an electromagnetic signature? Uh, I suppose that's an actual scientific question, you know, buried inside this otherwise enormous pile of dung. Well, probably very, very tiny, you know. Uh, not the kind of thing you can read outside the body. Right, read outside the body. And how about everything else that's in the way? Oh, yeah, you, right. I, I mean, the noise is just, you know, there's so much going on. I, I can't per, I can't perceive how you could possibly ever be able to detect that with a, with a device such as this. And they're not even using a radio detector. They're using a dowsing rod. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Uh, it is, uh, this complete cure is approved by the Egyptian authorities and the armed forces are now seeking approval from the United States and Europe to gain global recognition. It will be available soon to all military hospitals in Egypt by June 30th. Yeah, but those selfish bastards say they're not going to export it because they don't want the evil Western companies to steal their, their invention. I know. They'll never get their hands on it. These have been around ever since there have been radios, you know, radio-based medicine. Yeah. We're either detecting. This is the the dynamizer, you know, Abrams oh, you know, yeah. dynamizer. That was a little black box that was supposed to read the radio signals of your disease and then use radio signals to cure them. And it's the same thing, except in dowsing rod form, you know. Yeah. I guess there was an excess of these after the bomb detector guy went to jail. <laughs> <laughs> what do we want to do with these? I don't know. Send them to Egypt. Yeah. The only question I have, obviously, this is you know, this is just like the pseudoscience of the week, obviously, but. Uh, do they believe this? Is this are they making this up as propaganda, or were they duped into thinking that these things work by some con men? 
That's the only thing. Yeah. That, well, I'll that tell you I what they don't know. They're duping and convincing a lot of government officials because a bunch of them got up in front of a podium, you know, generals or whatever in uniforms uh, and doctors. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean stuff. they didn't believe it. I mean, they're you know, come on, they don't want to get shot. Is why they're, they're, they're <laughs> well, the party line. I suppose there's there's always that possibility. Egypt's not the most stable place right now. No, 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 I, hear you. I mean, their entire government did just resign, right? Yeah, that just happened. <laughs> It's it's sad. I mean, they're just embarrassing themselves. But it's uh, you know, it, it's I think it's it's plausible either way. You know that they that, that this is some kind of just some propaganda thing, or that they actually think that this works. You know, both of those are plausible, unfortunately. By the way, Evan, quick follow up to last week. Uh, we were talking about another Egyptian news item. You know, remember the cartouche? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So. Me. Uh, asked about the cartridge. Yeah, the cartridge. So this is, I mean, and we got emails, and I looked it up, and and so uh, as well. And so it's very interesting. So a a cartouche, by the way, is an, is a form of Egyptian hieroglyphs where you have like the oval, like the old elongated oval with the symbols inside of it and the horizontal line at one end. That's a cartouche. And it's a name plaque. Or it's usually, a, yeah, it's usually a royal name. Usually enclosing enclosing a royal name. The word cartouche was applied to these uh, hieroglyphs by French soldiers who thought that it resembled the paper powder cartridge of their firearms. Cartouche is the French word for cartridge. So in this article, the article was inappropriately translating the word cartouche into its literal French translation of cartridge. Oh, yeah. Well, that's right? funny. So, yeah, it shouldn't have been translating the word, but, but it was. So, so that answers the riddle of why that article was talking about cartridges on the you know on the egyptian walls when, right right yeah, was, the one was, translated from the german yeah, site exactly all right let's move on to the next news item bob you're going to tell us about changing the climate or maybe not um <laughs> so see i'm kind of bummed about this one actually it, it looks like climate engineering uh, would provide minimal benefit at best and cause great harm at worst if we ever get around to actually trying to pull these off. A scientist from the Geomar Helmholtz Center for o Ocean Research, Kiel, they've uh, run simulations of various climate engineering approaches and compared them and have, have basically come to that conclusion. And uh, climate engineering, we've we've touched upon it a few times, but it, that's essentially, it's also called geoengineering as well, but that's essentially the large-scale effort to intentionally alter the global climate to reduce climate change. So I'll start off with what kind of approaches did they actually try to simulate? And there's four of them, basically. There's the, um, one of them was, uh, reducing income, incoming, uh, solar radiation. And there's a couple, there's a bunch of different ways to do that. One would be to have these huge orbiting mirrors that basically reflect the light, of, you know, uh, from the sun so that it doesn't hit the earth. Um, that, that's one way to do it. You could also inject sulfur aerosols into the stratosphere and things like that to, uh, to increase the albedo of the, uh, of the earth and, and prevent the, uh, the light from getting to the surface, things like that. They also did simulations on artificial oceanic upwelling. This is interesting. Uh, this idea uses special ocean pipes that must be gargantuan to pump the uh, nutrient rich deep water to essentially uh, fertilize the surface water. So you're, you're upwelling the, the deep water up into the, up to the surface. The idea there is to sequester atmospheric CO2, um, which is what that would accomplish. There's also something called afforestation, which involves growing what would amount to be millions of trees in uh, African and Australian deserts. And uh, the idea there is to remove as well carbon dioxide from the atmosphere 
And uh, the other one uh, that I came upon was uh, ocean iron fertilization. And that method basically adds huge amounts of lime or iron, iron filings to the ocean surface to simulate these massive growths of uh, phytoplankton, the big, huge blooms of phytoplankton with the goal, again, of removing carbon from the atmosphere. So, that, so those are the, the main strategies people have been talking about, and that, that's what they studied. So and all of them have at least the potential and kind of makes sense – uh, as a way to reduce temperature across the entire planet and, and prevent the major downsides of a global climate change. Now, the problem with previous research that's been done into this was that the approaches were, first of all, very few of them uh, actually compared the different approaches against each other. Um, and making those comparisons are kind of difficult, you know, when, when the different methods use different models of the earth and they make different assumptions about climate change and all these, all these things. Um, also, a lot of the uh, previous studies never considered possible side effects or they couldn't actually tease out um, what these side effects could be or, you know, how everything might feed back into the climate. So those are important considerations that could really impact how successful uh, these strategies could be. So the, the new research used this, used one Earth model. This is called the University of Victoria Earth System Model, which is apparently a, uh, I'm told, a model of inter intermediate complexity. Um, that's how they described it. Now, the whole experimental setup was designed to factor in, among other things, the side, the, the side effects that I'm talking about and, and the feedback into the global climate. So what they found was interesting and was basically this. It was a, kind of disappointing. They found that if you employed these approaches individually, continuously, and on a scale that's as large as possible, they only saw something like 8% or less uh, warming reduction, which is kind of pitiful. Either that or they saw these really nasty f side effects. Plus, if you stopped some of them, like for example, the orbiting mirror, and it's hard to predict, there could be a technical or a legal or some sort of international issue that, that would cause it to stop working or or somebody to hit the off button or whatever, the problem then would be that you could potentially see a much quicker rise in average global temperature, which could be which could be very devastating, even worse than a slow rise. Some of the ideas like the uh, the afforestation method uh, actually did remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. I mean, you, you plant a million trees and yeah, you're going to have that effect. But also uh, one of the side effects of that is making the Earth's surface darker, which d basically decreases our, our albedo, our coefficient of re reflectivity, and then it allows the Earth to hold more heat, something we are trying not to do. So so the bottom line from this was that um, if, if our CO2 emissions remain high as they are now, uh, these climate engineering approaches really won't help much at all. I'm not disappointed because, you know what, whenever I've heard about these geoengineering schemes to combat global warming, they always seemed like crazy ideas that could not possibly work. I was never impressed with any idea I ever heard. It always seems like, really? It's, it's like like a mad scientist villain kind of thing to do, to try to like... I get that, Stephen. Especially some things like, you know, creating, you know, a, a many-kilometer scale mirror in orbiting in space. I mean, that's like, yeah. okay. Uh, do we really have the confidence to mess with our climate like that? And exactly. Isn't it better mm -hmm. to just to try to, mm -hmm. to try to, you know, produce less CO2? Isn't that like the Abs simple thing to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> more I nuclear, keep... more thorium. Yeah, more thorium. Get those thorium reactors going. Yeah. When I was thinking <laughs> about it, injecting those aerosols into the stratosphere, I couldn't help but think of um, the Animatrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Bob, would you believe it? I've never seen it. Jay. All right. We're going to sit down next time you're over here. We're going to watch it. It's it's magnificent. But there's one scene where as a last-ditch effort, the humans actually fly these amazing gargantuan planes and they, they spray this and something nasty into the atmosphere that basically makes the Earth dark because – uh, the the robots were solar, so they figured let's cut off the sun entirely, and uh, we'll defeat the robots. And of course, the robots just kind of laughed at them, like, "Yeah, we're way beyond solar, dudes." But uh, it's just funny that that image is in my mind now from this reading this news item. But uh, all right, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about Plus One's new scheme to require uh, well open data. Yeah, it's I I think it's pretty exciting. Plus, of course, is uh, Plus One is the open access journal, science journal. Apparently, up until now, they have always had a policy in place in which all the Plus journals have apparently always had a standard in place in which they request that the data involved in any paper that's published be made available. But Starting now, they are getting much more specific about this requirement and insisting that any paper that is published in a PLOS journal include a, a first page detailing exactly how the general public can access all of the data involved in their experiments. So I think it's a really great step towards transparency. It's something that we often talk about on the show. Uh, you know, how do we critically evaluate studies if we can't actually see what's what's behind the paper? You know, what's the raw data look like? And so with this new requirement in place, not only can anyone access the actual paper involved with the study, but they can go behind the paper, look at the data, and see if and how that data might have been manipulated to get the desired results, which is something that unfortunately happens all too often. So I think it's a really bold and positive step for PLOS One to take. All right. So I I blogged about this on Science-Based Medicine on Wednesday, and I, I essentially made the same points that you did, Rebecca. I thought it was a great idea. Uh, the conversation, though, in the comments after the article has been very interesting. And let me just relate to you some of the the downsides that people have brought up. And this is mostly researchers commenting on the on the blog post. So they said, first of all, this you know having this data available to the um, to the public means that cranks can now use it to harass scientists, essentially stalking you know their the data and trying to cast doubt on it by doing their own you know and any armchair scientist with with an axe to grind can now like abuse the data the, the data themselves and think that they're doing science you know so they they foresee that this could lead to huge harassment they also bring up the fact that well there's a lot of practical issues with this and and the plan plus one doesn't plus doesn't really go over this um, like some data sets are multiple gigabytes of files. Like where is this all going to be stored? Some studies, like if, like for example, somebody brought up the fact of uh, like at the CERN Super Collider, the the most of the raw data is not saved at all. It's sort of you know the the data is analyzed as it comes in and it's sort of discarded along the way because you just can't store it. It's just massive, massive amounts of data. Others have said that, you know, worried about the burden this would put on scientists. This means more government oversight, 
you know, assuming that the, you know, the government takes a, takes a, um, their lead from PLOS and says, yeah, this is a good idea. We should have, uh, scientists disclose their raw data. But even just to get published in PLOS, it means that scientists have to devote more of their research resources to putting this data together in a, in a format that's readable and making it accessible. And they think that that basically translates into less resources to doing actual research. So you have to consider the expense versus the benefit of making researchers do this. So I thought those were all interesting points. You know, my, my response was essentially, I get the whole point about cranks harassing you, but they do that already. They do that with all kinds of open access. They did that, you know, to the, the climate data, et cetera, that they, they're going to do that. I think what we need to do is search for solutions to deal with the sort of wild west public access to all this stuff rather than not releasing it, not making it publicly available. Yeah, and I, I think some of those issues that your readers bring up are good. I think others um, not so convincing. I mean, for instance, uh, PLOS has already uh, directly stated, you know, if your data set is too large for any of the solutions, they and they recommend, you know, they, they offer a number of various ways that you can easily make data available to the general public. Yeah. Uh, but if your data set is too large for any of those uh, solutions, then you get in touch with them and they work with you to figure out a way to make it work. Um, they also allow exceptions in some cases, like when it's not ethical to make a data set yeah. fully public, like with patient data and things like that. And, you know, and the idea of this data being used for harassment, I honestly, I just, I feel that that's really weak because I, I think that cranks are going to use anything to harass people, you know, and we shouldn't use that as an excuse to not be as transparent as possible. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. This we shouldn't cater to the cranks by not being transparent. I think that's the kind of thing they're they're predicting what's going to happen. I think let's just do it, see what happens, and deal with it. Yeah, you know, I think that's a better approach. One other point though that I didn't make mention that was brought up is that that there's the concern that this may encourage scientists to commit more hanky panky with the data. You know, they're going to um, only submit like really pristine data. Uh, because they know it's going to be poured over by the public. And I don't know. Again, we don't know what that means. They're, they're speculating about what's going to happen. Again, I say, let's do it and see what happens. All right, Evan, tell us about Who's That Noisy? Yeah, I'll play right. last week's for you. You all right there, Jay? Yeah, I'm good. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> all right, calm down. All right, all right, yeah. Who's That Noisy? So here we go. Last week's Who's That Noisy? And you show in the, ki the kill shot, Kennedy is going back and to the left very clearly. The shot has to come from the front because he reacts. He goes back. And there's now they've put scientific coding on it and called it all kinds of things, but that doesn't work. Uh, well, a familiar voice. Back, <laughs> back to, the left. to the left. What do you guys think when you saw the movie JFK for the first time? Do you recall? Yes, I thought it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the voice of Oliver Stone, the director of the film, which is called JFK, all about the assassination of uh, former President John F. Kennedy. Uh, it's taken from the standpoint of Jim Garrison, who was the attorney general of New Orleans. The back and to the left thing, he's still tired. I mean, that's been explained experimentally, you know, theoretically over and over again. The bullet went through, essentially, it entered the right occipital, you know, lobe exited the right 
I believe parietal, might have been temporal, basically took off a little flap of skull on the right side of JFK's skull. The brains shot out to the right and forward and pushed the head rocket-like back and to the left. You could see it on the video. You can see it. And it's been replicated experimentally. The fact that he's still touting that is unbelievable. Anyway, so who got that, Evan? Uh, Who didn't get it? That would be a shorter list, but uh, (laughs) there can be only one winner each week. And this week, there can be only one from the message boards. Whoever this is, they go by the name of Pants. And I say that with exclamation because there's an exclamation (laughs) point after that. Pants is this week's winner. Well done. Pants. Is that from, is that from head? Pants. No. <laughs> Could be. A little Austin Powers mixed in. No, not Austin Powers. The, uh, uh, Married an Axe Murderer. We had a very, very funny movie. My gosh. What do you think? We're ready for this week's? Yeah, hit it. <laughs> yes, hit us. Time, time to move on. Okay. Here we go. That's John Holmes in his first audition. So, yes, go ahead. Give us your guesses for that one. WTN at theskepticsguide.org is the email, or go ahead and post it on the message boards. Winners on the message boards, sguforums.com. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. We have to get to our interview, so I think we're only going to have time for one quick email this week. Uh, this one comes from Alex Wittig from Charlotte, North Carolina. He writes, Hi, guys. Love the show. I sent an email to my local public radio station when I heard that they were planning to interview Vanny Harry again. I sent a link to your recent blog about the Subway Sandwich kerfuffle. Here's a link to the interview with her response to Stephen's comments. Her interview starts around the 37-minute mark. Thanks for all that you do. So that is a bit of awesome skeptical activism, Alex. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate it. He essentially sent a link to my blog post about the uh, the Subway sandwich thing with the food babe. Yeah, this is on Charlotte Talks on WFAE, which is a, an NPR station. This, the host is Mike Collins, and he read extensively from my blog post yes. to raise points up against uh, the food babe, who you know, I think was incoherent you know, in her attempts to respond. Here's just a little clip from that interview. In exposed workers, he says, people working in factories where ADA is used as a blowing agent and who therefore might get direct exposure to the aerosolized chemical. This has absolutely no relevance for the risks of its use in making bread. Well, you know, what's really interesting is that these scientists think it's okay for these ba- these workers, these p- thousands of bakers across the nation to be exposed to this chemical. I mean, honestly, it's for, for someone who's grown up with asthma their whole entire life, and it wasn't until I removed all of these chemicals from my diet that I got better, you know, and to think that it's okay for these workers to be exposed to a chemical that almost every other country bans, Australia, Europe, UK, uh, Singapore, other parts of Asia, you know, they don't, Subway does not use this ingredient in even China. So here, like he says that, you know, she said the the chemical azotocarbonamide causes asthma. I pointed out that, yeah, but that that's in workers who are in the factory where it's being used as a blowing agent and they're inhaling it directly, not in the bread. And she said, well, those scientists don't care about the workers in factories. What? 
So first of all, it completely misses the point, which is that you misled your readers into thinking that it was dangerous in the bread, not in the factory. And so now you're an OSHA ex- expert now. Now you're you're familiar with work conditions and how to protect workers from, you know, aerosolized agents and the relative risk of this particular chemical versus, say, breathing in other substances. You know, it has nothing to do with the fact that it's used in in the in the making of bread. You know, in the making of bread, it's a bleaching agent, etc. So completely dodged, completely dodged the point. So, guys, I emailed her today. Um, I sent a request for an interview and I said that, you know, I feel that we're both motivated on both sides of this discussion to get to the bottom of things and that we'd really like to further discuss this topic. Uh, so hopefully we'll get a response and maybe we'll get her on the show and, and talk this thing through with her. Yeah, be happy to get her on the show. You know what peeved me off the most? One of her responses was, is that she said, if if there's nothing to what I'm saying, then why did Subway come out with a reaction 24 hours after you know, so, I posted so naive. about this? Right. So therefore, you're guilty because you know I I exposed you and you had to basically fess up to your guilt and and change your ways about it. Yeah. So Colin said he read from my column that well Subway had no choice; they're just doing damage control. You know, because it's so easy to fear monger and they're a company; they have to look at the bottom line. And he said, "Are you worried? You know that you're that you know that you're not a scientist. Maybe you're wrong, and you know that you're that you're doing this. You're affecting these companies." And she's like, "Well, I think the bullies here are Subway for claiming that their food is fresh when it's not fresh." Uh, oh my gosh! Yeah, it's just another example, in my opinion, of a uh, a pseudo intellectual taking on a topic that they really don't have any right to comment on. Yeah, but at the at the same time, taking you know doing damage to a uh, to a company you know who. Who has to who has to now go through a whole bunch of PR, changing their ways, changing their ingredients, all in the name of what? In in the name of her opinion, not on based on any scientific evidence. And if she does actually listen to this episode, I can guarantee she won't come on any other uh, episode. If she comes on the show, we will be fair and respectful to her. We'll just have a discussion on the points, on the logic, on the science of and course. the claims. I get the feeling that was the first time that she was ever challenged. Challenged, yeah. yeah. Didn't she? Didn't really have. She had her talking she, points, and that she just went back to them and right. didn't really address the, the 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 points that were being made to her. Well, guys, we have to take a quick break from the show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Personal Capital. Yeah, Steve. You know, there. If you think about it, there are really only two main barriers to growing your wealth. One is that how do you keep track of all that money? You know, stocks, 401ks, bank accounts, uh, they're all on different sites with different usernames and passwords. And the other barrier is that you have to pay somebody to manage all that money. And you're probably paying too much. Well, Rebecca, Personal Capital brings all your accounts and assets on one single screen on your computer, your phone, your tablet with real time and intuitive graphics. That's right, Bob. It shows how much you're overpaying in fees and how to reduce those fees. You also get tailored advice on optimizing your investments. I mean, seriously, what are we talking about here, guys? We want, if you want to keep track of all your finances and you want to do it in a fast and easy and reliable way, personal capital has a, the perfect tool for you. You could use it on any of your smart devices. It's inexpensive and it comes highly recommended. Yeah, I've been using it. It's actually a really good interface. So to set up your free account, go to personalcapital.com slash SGU. It's a free and smart way to grow your money. So go to personalcapital.com slash SGU. Well, let's go on with our interview.
Joining us now is Dr. Michio Kaku. Dr. Kaku, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Glad to be on the show. And uh, we're, you're, we're interviewing you tonight uh, be, to talk about your new book, The Future of the Mind. So uh, this, is this your first departure uh, from writing about your your primary area of physics? Uh, not really. However, this is the first time that I've seriously gone into a topic uh, where physics has changed the entire landscape, but is not really physics per se. However, I've always had an enduring curiosity about the mind. After all, the Big Bang and the origin of intelligence are the two greatest mysteries in all of nature, inner space and outer space. So that's why you decided to write a book on neuroscience, just because you've uh, been very interested in that for a long time? Well, more than that, uh, when I was a child, uh, I read a lot of science fiction, and I was fascinated by the idea of telepathy, reading minds, and telekinesis, moving objects, and recording memories, and maybe photographing dreams. All the stuff that you see in paranormal pseudoscience journals and stuff like that. I was fascinated by these things, so I would do experiments. I would try to read other people's minds and project my thoughts and move objects by the sheer power of thinking. And I came to the conclusion that maybe they were telepaths that truly walked the surface of the earth, but I wasn't one of them. I was a total failure when it came to becoming a telepath. Uh, however, now I'm a physicist, and now we can actually use advanced physics to do all of the above. Telepathy, telekinesis, photographing dreams, uploading memories, they are all possible. In fact, we do it in the laboratory. So give us an example of what you mean by doing telekinesis in the laboratory. Well, take a look at Stephen Hawking, my colleague. He's a great cosmologist, but he's lost control of his fingers now, and so he has no direct way to manipulate things to communicate with the world. But next time you see him on television, look at his right frame of his glasses. There's a chip in it. That chip has a radio, which picks up uh, radio emissions from his brain, interprets them, and allows him to type. So he can type with the power of the mind. And now the military has done millions of dollars in a project called Revolutionary Prosthetics, whereby they take veterans from the Iraq and Afghan war, put a chip in their brain about the size of a dime, that is then connected to a laptop that then allows them to move a mechanical arm or a mechanical leg or exoskeleton. And so we're at the point now where we can take people that are totally paralyzed because of a sports injury, because of a roadside bomb or a stroke, and with the sheer power of the mind, connect them to a wheelchair so they can manipulate household appliances, read email, write email, surf the web, do crossword puzzles, and even manipulate exoskeletons, and this is straight out of Iron Man comics. So you're talking about the brain-machine interface. That's right, BMI. And not only can we do that, we can also upload memories, just like in the movie The Matrix. So Hollywood movies are slowly becoming physical reality. Just last year, for the first time in world history, the first thought was recorded and then inserted back into a living brain. It was done on a mouse, and it proved that you can record memories. We've actually done it, and insert the memory back into the brain. Next will be a primate. We will record something that a primate learns, 
inserted back into the memory after they've forgotten it, and they will retrieve that memory. And after that comes humans in clinical trials for Alzheimer's. That's one of the immediate goals driving neurologists to perfect this technology. It's called a brain pacemaker. And the brain pacemaker will inject memories of people who have advanced Alzheimer's so they'll know who they are, who their kids are, where they're located, their house, their keys, and things like that. And beyond that, think of all the courses you flunked in college. Maybe, just maybe, we'll push the button and learn calculus. Or for that matter, think of all the workers that are thrown out of work because technology marches on. We may be able to retrain workers by simply pushing a button. Or think about taking a vacation that never existed. And if you saw the movie, to- movie Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger, he had a whole marriage, a whole marriage uplifted into his memory, which was totally fake. And so the implications of this are enormous. Right. So, yeah, I agree that these things have been demonstrated in principle in the lab. I mean, the, the brain-machine-brain interface uh, research is really, uh, really exciting. But um, there, the applications that you're talking about, of course, are some you know unforeseeable future away. I mean, there's significant practical limitations before we get to the point where we're learning Kung Fu, you know, in two minutes by downloading it from a computer. Yeah, we have a long ways to go, but the first step was taken, and that is incredible. Who would have thought that we could input memories um, artificially, and now we can do it? Yeah, and I think I agree. I think that the uh, the prosthetic exoskeleton application is probably a lot closer than recording and downloading memories. It's one thing to have a rat or a mouse run through a maze. You know, having an entire histories of people and detailed memories. It's hard to predict how far that off that is. But I think you know, the, right now we, we've already pretty much established every proof of concept necessary for full uh, control of either virtual virtual avatars, avatars or yeah, or um, you know, full exoskeletons. I think that's probably going to be a lot closer. And another thing, another movie that is coming to uh, fruition is the movie Surrogate, starring Bruce Willis and. Oh, Avatar. that was great! Yeah. Uh, here's a situation where you mentally, mentally control another being, and that other being could have superpowers. That other being could be super handsome, and you can control it and see through its eyes. Now, in Japan, the first steps towards surrogates was taken with the robot Asimo. Asimo is one of the world's most advanced robots. It can run, walk, climb upstairs, dance even. And they connected it as a mode to a worker with an EEG helmet. And so by simply thinking, the worker is able to move the motions of a robot. This could be the future of the space program. It's very dangerous to put astronauts on the moon, but why not put a robot on the moon that is controlled by a human on the Earth mentally? That could be the future of construction, because there are many jobs that are very dangerous for construction workers. And so you can imagine all these industrial and commercial applications of robots doing jobs that uh, a normal robot cannot do because these robots are controlled by a human. Look at Fukushima. All the robots sent into the Fukushima disaster have failed. Every single one has been a disaster. 
That's why, again, the Pentagon is allocating millions of dollars to create robots that can work in high radiation fields amid all the debris of a nuclear accident. And so this has enormous industrial applications. Yeah, so you have the intelligence of a human combined with the ruggedness of a robot. Right, and that's called a surrogate. And one yeah. day, firemen, one day, uh, perhaps policemen, in, you know, encountering very dangerous situations, uh, will, will enter these situations uh, knowing that the person is actually quite safe. Unfortunately, there will also be the other side of that coin in which some people will use this technology for nefarious purposes. And Well, the uh, bad applications of this technology are potentially enormous. If you can upload false memories, like a vacation, into somebody, like in the movie Total Recall, you can also inject uh, evil memories as well. And so our legal system, for example, is based on eyewitness accounts. That's why you have to swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. But if you can inject false memories into people, then eyewitness testimonies don't mean anything at all. Or as the movie Total Recall showed, you are who you think you are via your memories. Mm. Throughout the movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger thinks he's the good guy. At the very end of the movie, he finds out that he's actually the bad guy with good memories imposed upon him. And so he has an identity crisis at the end of the movie. Am I the good guy or the bad guy or both? And the answer was he's both. He's both the good guy and the bad guy in the movie. And so the legal implications are enormous with this technology. Doctor, you, you mentioned all these potential technologies, uploading, telepresence, artificial intelligence, and, and they're clearly, they're very fascinating, and we've clearly taken uh, the first steps and uh, and making these making these reality and they, and I think the potential is amazing. But are there any that you shy away from? Some that you maybe you're either afraid of or just something you just have no interest in actually attempting? Well, there is the concept of mind control. Uh, during the 1950s and 60s, the CIA and the government spent millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, on cockamamie ideas called MK Ultra. And we know from the Freedom of Information Act the details of MKUltra. I quote them in my book. Uh, the military enlisted psychics to find Russian submarines. They also uh, used psychics to try to read people's minds. They analyzed hypnosis, hypnotic drugs, LSD, um, truth serums. You name it, they tried it. It was a complete failure. Not one usable piece of information came out, even though the military tried to control people's minds. However, now in the future, uh, we may have some of that possibility. For example, President Barack Obama shocked the nation, and especially the scientific community last January. In his State of the Union address, he mentioned the Brain Initiative. The Europeans and the U.S. will dump over a billion dollars, that's a billion with a B, into mapping the entire human brain. Once you map the human brain, you're going to have a disk with all the connections on it, including your personality, your memories, who you are. And the short-term goal is to cure mental illness. Because with these brain scans, we can now see mental illness in action. We can actually begin to pick apart why schizophrenics 
are, quote, crazy. We can actually see that the brain talks to itself. That's your left temporal lobe in action. That's why you talk to yourself. But we're aware of it. These people are not. They are not aware of the fact that their brain is talking to themselves. We can see that now with brain scans. So mental illness may one day be cured with this project. However, further down the line, if you know all the pathways for behaviors, you can excite them without a person's permission. That's already been done with animals. I quote from animal studies where we can actually have a dial, turn the dial, and make animals run around in circles, charge, stop, do all sorts of things by just turning a dial. Sort of like controlling a puppet, except it's a real animal. If it can be done for animals, then eventually somebody is going to try to do it on humans as well. So there definitely is a dark side. Yeah, since you're a fan of science fiction, I'll just mention that that's uh, essentially a zone implant from the Gap series. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> what? With, with that with that science fiction series, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's it's a, yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. It's a it's an implant that you can completely control somebody's emotions and and actions and whatever uh, with it with like a remote control. Let, let's talk about artificial intelligence a little bit. Uh, so you mentioned about mapping the connectome, all, all the connections in the brain. And that's certainly one path that will lead us to potentially the, to reverse engineer brain function and therefore create a virtual or artificial intelligence. So, what do you what do you discuss about that in your book? What do you what what are your feelings about how far are we or how close are we to artificial intelligence, like true self aware machines, and and how long do you think it'll be till we get there? Well, fifty years ago, scientists made a mistake in thinking that the brain was a digital computer. Throughout history, people have made analogies to the brain. Sigmund Freud thought that the brain was like a steam engine. You had energy flows, repression, and explosions that he called neuroses. So he thought the brain was like a steam engine. Then they thought that the brain was like a telephone switching station. Then they thought that the brain was like a digital computer. It is actually none of the above. A digital computer has a Pentium chip, CPU, software, programming, Windows, whatever. The brain has none of the above. So what is the brain? brain is a neural network. It's a learning machine. It rewires itself after learning every new task. Therefore, your laptop today is just as stupid as it was yesterday. It never learns anything at all. And therefore, we had to start from the bottom and go up. That's how Mother Nature did it. That's how evolution did it, through insects, reptiles, and animals. They learned by bumping into things. We thought that we could put all the laws of logic and motion on a disk, put the disk in a robot, and all of a sudden it becomes self-aware. That is too hard. No one has succeeded. Billions have been spent on that approach called the top-down. Now they're looking at bottom-up. That is learning like a baby. And one of the fruits of this is the Mars rover. The Mars rover does not have the dynamics of walking inputted into it. Everyone thought that the first robot on Mars would look like a human and walk like a human. No, it's an insect. That's the way of the future, to build robots from the ground up. So we have a long ways to go before robots become as smart as us. Right now, robots that are truly autonomous have the intelligence of a cockroach. 
a retarded cockroach, <laughs> a lobotomized retarded cockroach. But eventually, they will become intelligent, like maybe a mouse, then a rabbit, then a dog or a cat, and finally a monkey. At that point, they could become dangerous. So I think we should put a chip in their brain to shut them off if these monkey robots have murderous thoughts. I, I have an agree. Like Asimov, Asimov's laws, yeah, robotics. Yeah, we need the off switch. Got to have that off switch. Dr. Kaku, it seems like the theme uh, running through your book then is, is a, a pretty solid premise of a materialist approach to the brain. You know, no dualism or ghost in the machine that, you know, we, we're able to muck around with the brain because it is just a complicated machine. Well, it's, it's wetware. It's wetware. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you, you agree with that. You think that, yeah, it's a, this is the materialist assumption of neuroscience is pretty solid. Well, one day we'll be able to have a disc after Obama's program is finished, a disc called Brain 2.0 with all our neural connections on it, including our memories, personalities, desires, and hopes, and it will live on after we die. We will die as biological beings because of the second law of thermodynamics. But the disk will survive, and one day somebody will turn it on, maybe mainly your great-great-great-great-grandkids, and they're going to have a nice conversation with you. So you will live forever. So in some sense, who are you? You, in some sense, is information. The sum total of everything necessary to create you, your genome and your connectome, is you. And what is you? You are information. Well, on that note, unfortunately, I have another call coming in, but it's been a great pleasure to talk to you people. Dr. Kaku, thanks for giving us the interview. We really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Take Thank care. Thank you. All right, everyone. We have to take a quick break from our show to talk about Go to meeting. You know what? It's important to build a strong relationship with your team. And one of the ways you can do that is to meet and collaborate with coworkers and clients on a regular basis using GoToMeeting with HD Faces by Citrix. Yeah, I definitely use this all the time, guys. I speak to uh, coworkers in Sweden quite a bit, pretty much, uh, you know, multiple times a week. And we do need to have development meetings together and go to meeting just makes it easy. I mean, it's you know, seeing each other, being able to view each other's screens, pass documents and all the things that go to meeting does to make it simple to do this is just incredible for your job. Yeah, it's, it's so easy. When we did it uh, together as a group, it was just a link and you're pretty much ready to go. Um, just sign up for go, go to meeting from your computer or mobile device and launch your first meeting in seconds. You'll be able to share the same screen to collaborate on projects in real time. And you can start your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting today by visiting gotomeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code SGU. That's gotomeeting.com, promo code SGU. Well said. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the faker, the one that I'm lying about. I lie every week to you guys. I, I like I know, how you're, you're mixing it up a bit this yeah, week, Item number one, a pair of studies both indicate that, contrary to prior research, breastfeeding does not correlate with higher intelligence. 
Item number two, a review of data indicates that obesity prevalence among children and adults in the United States have not significantly changed between 2003 and 2012. And item number three, a new study finds that children as young as nine months old are able to learn how to read. Bob, go first. Uh, nine months old are able to learn how to read. I mean, I don't think most can be taught, but I'm sure at the very bright end of the spectrum, it's possible. Hmm. That's still pretty, that's still impressive. Um, the obesity one, I just, 2003 and 2012, it's not a huge difference. It's not a, a huge span of time. Have not, I mean, sure. What the hell? Yeah. There's nothing weird about that. Maybe that's a red flag. So let's see. The first one uh, does not correlate with higher intelligence um, breastfeeding. Oh, see, that one's really tough because I could see a correlation between breastfeeding and um, and you know kids being you know advancing, uh, you know getting smarter quicker, but not necessarily. I don't think it's going to actually increase your ultimate intelligence. I mean, there's really, for everything that I've read about, there's really not, not not much you can do about that. Higher intelligence. Oh, man, I'm going to get bitten on this one. I know it. I mean, I think they would do better in school, but not necessarily have higher. In- All right, screw it. I'm going to go uh, the higher intelligence is fiction. Okay, Rebecca? Yeah, uh, that one does jump out at me, the the breastfeeding one. The breasts jump out at you? The breasts jump out of me. Jump out at me. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Although, uh, in opposition opposition to Bob, uh, I think that there are many studies, I think, that show better academic performance in kids who are breastfed, um, as well as, like, lower rates of obesity and um, better, l- less hyperactivity, I guess, better ability to pay attention in school, things like that. So... I, I think that the established studies do show that there is a correlation, but that said two things. One, the benefits of breastfeeding are often grossly exaggerated by proponents of breastfeeding, often to the detriment of women who can't breastfeed for one reason or another. And two, uh, those studies have been criticized with not adequately taking into consideration uh, socioeconomic, basically the socioeconomic traits of the the babies being studied. Um, You know, maybe wealthier parents are more able to breastfeed and also are more able to provide their kids with good education and blah, blah, blah. So that one does go against uh, established research, but in my mind, it's actually pretty understandable if that is what happened. So obesity prevalence amongst children and adults not significantly changed between 2003 and 2012. That is also, okay, yeah, sure, that sounds good. Why not? I haven't, I don't even think, like, there. yes, we do hear in the news that, you know, problems with obesity uh, in the U.S., but I, I don't know that like those reports have really increased between those dates. So between those years. So like, I, I feel like people have been whining about the obesity quote unquote epidemic in the U S at least since 2003. So that doesn't surprise me. Uh, children as young as nine months old learning how to read does surprise me. That's very young. 
I have heard about babies learning sign language at that age, but learning how to read, like, I wonder, I mean, are we talking about reading like a word or identifying the letter A? Anna Karina. Yeah, I, I'm having trouble picturing, like, I'm torn because maybe there's some weird little quirk, like, Yes, they learn to identify the letter A and maybe say, ah, does that count as learning how to read? I don't think so. But maybe the study does. So I guess it's between the breastfeeding one and the nine-month-old children learning to read. I'm going to go with, I'll go with the, the nine-month-old kids learning to read. I, that's, that's very young. Okay, Jay. Okay, the uh, the first one about uh, the breast milk, breastfeeding, it correlates with higher intelligence. Um, I could see that one being being true because the breast milk is tailored, particularly early on, um, and they could have found something in there, you know, some t- some type of nutritional benefit of some sort. I'm not. I've read so much about this, and I've been my wife and I been reviewing information and I, you know, this, this has been on my mind for over a year. So well over a year now. So I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but at the same time, um, I think, you know, I've also read a lot of things that say that nutritionally the, the, uh, formula today is, is superb. It's very, very close to breast milk. Um, and they could tell a lot by the, the poop as well. Like, you know, the differences are in what babies excrete and everything, but yeah, it's probably, yeah, I could see that one. Um, the second one about the obesity prevalence among children and adults in the United States, it has, it has not significantly changed between 2003 and 2012. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. Um, if anything, I would think that it would be getting worse, but I could see things, you know, stabilizing in the last 12 years or so or whatever. Um, so I don't see much in this one to to not believe. Um, the final one here, though, the one about the new study, uh, children as young as nine months old. You know, I'm agreeing with Rebecca. I just don't see how <laughs> just going through this with my son and knowing where he was at and seeing you know three three or four other children at that age range very recently in my life. Man, I just don't see the average child here reading. I mean, maybe a total. You know, a, a, a total freak intelligence could do that, but I can't see that the average kid here is a new study finds that children as young as nine months old are able, often able to learn how to read. No, no, that one's definitely not science in my book. And Evan. Breastfeeding does not correlate with higher intelligence, uh, contrary to prior research. So you hear so much, there's a lot of propaganda that goes on in regards to breastfeeding and stuff. I've always been kind of skeptical of what I've heard, some things I've read, you know, and a lot of the anecdotes that get thrown around by lots of women in this regard. So I I have a hard time thinking uh, that there's definitely factions out there that are, uh, you know, pro-breastfeeding, against breastfeeding, and and so forth. So There are people against breastfeeding? uh, Well, are there? Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
there are certainly feeding Nestle executives. Let me put it this less way. pro breastfeeding. Yes, less pro breastfeeding. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, right. So there are people who you know absolutely swear by it, and anything else is some sort of you know sin. And you know those who believe that it's okay does not correlate with higher intelligence. I'm leaning on that one being actually correct. Uh, propaganda, you know, actually in science has won the day here, perhaps. Uh, obesity prevalence among children and adults in the U.S. has not significantly changed between 03 and 12. So, well, I, there's a couple parts to this where it could be a problem. So you've got, um, you know, obviously the prevalence factor, but children and adults in the United States, you're talking about two, you know, very distinct groups of people. So perhaps one, not the other has changed, but the other maybe has shown improvement. I don't know. Maybe the adults have, have gotten better. I don't know. Are we a more fit nation? There's certainly uh, a, <laughs> lot of, a lot of pressures, Well, you know, in some ways I, it's, I wouldn't be surprised if the adult one there, maybe I'm not sure I agree there has with that, been a change. Continue. You know, again, just kind of going what I've heard. The last one about nine months old being uh, children learning how to read. So, you know, there must be a strict definition of what read means. I guess string words together and interpret it correctly on some level. You know, the the cat is black or whatever. Nine months old. I, I don't you know, sign language. We talked about that. I don't have a problem with this one. That's kind of baby Einstein-ish. Maybe that's the catch here. You know, it's. I'm having a problem with the uh, obesity one. I think the adults one will turn out to be that they uh, have changed. And therefore, that it makes that one wrong because it's not both children and adults. I think the adults have changed. So I'll say the obesity one's the fiction. But that means you guys are spread out over all three responses, which I always like. So you might as well take them in order. A pair of studies both indicate that contrary to prior research, breastfeeding does not correlate with higher intelligence. Bob, you think this is the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And what's interesting is that nobody picked up on the double entendre of a pair of studies. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, because boobs come in pairs. Good one. <laughs> yeah, you figured that out all by yourself. I'm, I've known wow. a few lone boobs in my time, though. <laughs> Could also work for a good ball joke. <laughs> it's true. It's That'll true. be next week's theme. Serve yeah. double duty. This one, Double. this Duty. one is <laughs> science. Sorry, Bob. So you had two different studies. I don't think they had anything to do with each other. I just happened to notice that they both were sort of making the same point. Uh, the first one is a study looking at the you know cohort of people who uh, do breastfeed and who don't breastfeed. But this what this study did was look at uh, breastfeeding, but also looked at other behaviors of the parents such as reading to their children, you know, or you know, being emotionally responsive to their children. And what they found was that um, if you control for those factors, that breastfeeding itself is not an independent factor that correlates with improved academic performance or higher intelligence, that, that, that there, the uh, correlation can be entirely explained on the basis of this behavior. And that, you, you, as Rebecca was saying, that you're, what you're looking at is that, is that you know, families that breastfeed also are just doing more parenting. Well, can't you say that that they that correlates though? It still correlates, but not as an independent variable. Well, I don't see independent in your description here, Steve. <laughs> yeah, but isn't that obvious that that's what I'm saying? No, I thought it was obvious. 
Meaning it's yeah, if it's not it's not an independent variable. That's what that means, Bob. It, that the if you, that the correlations with other things, you know. But if you, but if you looked at breastfeeding and and better performance in school and higher intelligence, would you find a correlation? But that co- that correlation would is you not find real. A correlation? The correlation is not real because it's, it's, it it relates to other variables. Not as in that's you know that's not an independent variable that that correlates with higher intelligence. Let it go, Bob. It's direct. Yeah. I'm I'm letting it go. But yeah, I was listening flying. to your answer, and you didn't say that when you. I would have corrected you if you said that during your during your response. Oh, sure, you would have. I was I was, spe- I was specifically <laughs> listening to that. To be honest with Let you. it go, Bob. But anyway, there was another study which also did the same thing. But this, this uh, similar thing, what they did was they looked at siblings, one sibling of which was breastfed and the other was not. And so they, they also looked at a lot, uh, you know, a large cohort of children, um, and compared breastfeeding to non-breastfeeding. And they found what all the previous studies found, which was that children who were breastfed did had higher academic performance and intelligence. But then, they pulled out just the sibling comparison. And when you do that, all of the correlations go away. So in other words, you're using siblings to control for socioeconomic status and parenting style style, and all these other factors because the chances are that the siblings are going to have much more similar environment, but one happened to be breastfed and the other didn't. And they, the, there was no correlation there when you looked at just that Cohort. So here, Bob, there was no correlation, but only when you're looking at a subset of the of the, of the uh, children. Only of all, like they looked at at uh, eleven different parameters. The only one that was there when you did the sibling comparison was that children who were breastfed had a higher risk of asthma. Huh. Um, so there was that oh. actually that oh. negative aspect to nerd uh, babies. Yeah. So both studies. Kind, you know, in different, with different methods, tried to control for confounding variables and found that it's just the confounding variables and not the breastfeeding that's really correlating with higher academic performance and intelligence. Not that breastfeeding isn't good, but I do think that the advantages are oversold by enthusiasts. Let's go on to number two. A review of data indicates that obesity prevalence among children and adults in the United States have not significantly changed between 2003 and 2012. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And have you guys ever gone to the CDC site and looked at their map of, of, of overweight and obesity rates by state? Can't from, say that I have. No, from, not by no. state. From 1970 until today? And you could just see the wave of obesity sweeping across the, the country. It's really Jeez. dramatic. There's just been this, this steady linear increase in obesity over the last decades, you know, since the oh. 1970s. But apparently it's plateaued in the last decade because Aha! this one is science from 2003, 2012. This is like the first time, you know, looking back over the previous decade, you know, since like the 1970s, that there hasn't been an increased prevalence. Good obesity. job, team. Yeah, and uh, in both children and and adults. So, I mean, team United States people. Yeah. Who so eat. we're we're still <laughs> obesity is still a huge problem. There's still a high incidence of obesity in this country, but it has appeared to have plateaued. So what it, that means, therefore, <laughs> a new study finds that children as young as nine months old are able to learn how to read. Is the fiction, Rebecca? And high Jay five, Jay. In fact. There was a study which showed that children at that age cannot learn to read. So this was a study looking at 
there, you know, there are programs. I blogged about this actually a number of years ago. Your baby can read. You guys ever hear? Oh that? yeah. So I, I blogged about it. I reviewed the literature and came to the conclusion that there was no evidence to support the grandiose claims made by the, the people who were selling the product. Your baby can read. Uh, yeah. That you could actually teach kids how to read. You know that they that it, there's any long term advantage. You know that they, they appear to just be memorizing stimulus, you know, but they're not actually doing any language processing or there's no evidence that they are anyway. I mean, you can't rule that out, but, you know, but based upon the data at the time. And what's interesting is that all sorts of parents who used the product showed up in my comments really angry at me for suggesting that the product doesn't work. You've never tried it. You don't understand it. It works, you know, really angry. So now we have an actual study Looking at this, uh, these techniques. This is, uh, by researchers at New York University's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. They actually did, uh, you know, a controlled trial looking at children from nine to 18 months old, putting them through, um, the, uh, Your Baby Can Read style of program and, uh, and then testing them afterwards to see if they had any vocabulary, any language recognition, you know, they don't have to necessarily like read a book out loud, but if you show them a flashcard that has a word on it, that they can then identify what the word represents, you know, or whatever. There's some indication that they're processing language. Uh, they said recognize letter names, letter sounds, vocabulary words identified on site. Um, and what they found is that there was absolutely no difference between the children who had gone through the program and the children who had not. That essentially the children did not learn how to read. Researchers discover babies stupid. No, the, the, the bottom line, and this is what I said, is that, you know, at that age, you're basically a slave to your programming. The brain is developing according to its own rate of development. And you can mess with that by depriving kids of sufficient stimulation, but you really can't. There's nothing you could do to make the brain develop quicker than it's going to develop. Well, if you beat the child. Well, I mean, again, you could, if you deprive them, you know, you lock them in a closet. Get smarter, damn it. I call it a Monroe box. You'll <laughs> we'll see if he, if he, yeah, if he fosters resentment towards me after 20 years. <laughs> uh, but uh, so anyway, so what they did, they said the only thing that correlated was the parents' firm belief that their children did learn to read. So in the study, Ooh. The parents firmly believed that their children learned to read, even when the data showed that they absolutely did not. So, which is interesting because it just shows that what, what this program does is it deceive parents into falsely believing their children have learned <laughs> to read. That was the actual effect. That's, wow. That was the effect. That was the only demonstrable effect. And it, and it was, it was very clear, which, which, which correlates with my anecdotal experience in the comments of my blog about, about this product <laughs> that parents were led yeah. to this false my belief that child. their children learned how to read. And now I'm going to have to obviously, uh, you know, after this episode's over because it's a science or fiction, I'll, I'll add a link to this study at the end of that blog post. <laughs> Piss off a new set of new cohort of parents. Jay. Yes. As a new parent, do you find yourself succumbing to the desire to force your baby to be smarter and better than every other baby who has ever existed. I don't have to. He already is. Okay. See that? <laughs> that that answers it exactly. <laughs> as I but no, I I think my son is extraordinarily average. 
That's it. He's <laughs> That's average. refreshing to hear. <laughs> I think he's wonderful, and I'll do anything for him. But he's, you know, this is no, there's no Einstein here. At that age, well, you can't tell. You have no idea. You just can't tell. All you're looking at is just how is the rate at which your kid happens to be developing. And as long as it's within a very a fairly broad range, it doesn't predict anything. Yeah. You know, kids who talk early aren't necessarily going to be smarter than kids who talk late. It's just the rate at which they're, those modules in their brain are developing and coming online. All right. Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I do. This is a quote sent in by a listener named Greg Coburn. And Greg is from Scotland. Um, one of my absolute favorite people out there in the skeptical community is Tim Minchin. And uh, this Tim. was a quote. This was a quote uh, taken from a graduation speech that Tim did uh, recently, um, probably last year, I'd imagine. And the quote is, please don't make the mistake of thinking that the arts and sciences are at odds with one another. That is a recent, stupid, and damaging idea. You don't have to be unscientific to make beautiful art or to write beautiful things. Science is not a body of knowledge or a belief system. It is just a term that describes humankind's incremental acquisition of understanding through observation. Science is awesome. The arts and sciences need to work together to improve how knowledge is communicated. That's a great quote. Tim Minchin! Yeah, Tim is definitely a friend of the show. He's an awesome guy. Awesome, awesome guy. Yep. He loves me. <laughs> he, does. He, lo- he does love you, huh, Bob? <laughs> Aww. All right. Well, thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Thank sure. you, Steve. Thank you. And, thanks. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And now that the show's over, don't forget to sign up for your free account with Personal Capital right now. With Personal Capital, you'll finally be able to see all your accounts in one place and get a clear view of everything you own. To sign up for free, go to theskepticsguide.org and click on the Personal Capital banner or go to personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. Personal Capital, less fees, more cheese.